So let me have a word of prayer with you, and I'll share with you what, what I have on my heart today. Oh, Jesus, thank you so much for these beautiful people. Man, Lord, just, just look down. Just take a moment. I don't know if you look down, but just look, Lord, and, and see that all of us are prepping our homes and, and even prepping our, what goes on our tree and prepping celebrations. So many of us are doing it. Why? We're celebrating you. And I'm, I know that there's all kinds of flaws when humans trying to bring glory to you, but that's kind of what you like. You like us giving you the, what we have. And I I'm grateful, Lord, for this time of year. I'm grateful for these people. They're part of my celebration every year as we think about the significance of you coming. And so I pray for the next few moments that you would fill our hearts with what we need. This is a stressful time of year. It's a confusing time of year. For some of us, it's a lonely time of year. So, Lord, just fill us with what you need. And, Lord, when we leave this place and we're all driving down that hill or whenever we're, whatever we're watching online, whatever's going on, uh, may we finish this moment and say, this is what, this is what God wants me to do to do, or this is who God wants me to be, to be more like him, because that's what we want. We just want to be a little bit more like you. So for some of us, that'll be a real simple thing. For others of us, it might be a little bit of an overhaul, but either way, we just, we just want to be more like you. So have your way in the next few moments, I pray, and we'll give you great praise. And the Lord, in order for that to happen, um, man, you got to hide me um, behind you. Uh, we don't want to be more like me. We want to be more like you. And so, so use us and cover us in your cross in your name. Amen. Well, uh, let me, I did this this morning already, and here's what I've sort of learned. Um, I think I'm going to depress you people over the next few moments, um, but I hope it'll be a good depression. And when we get done, you'll say, wow, that was a, the best depressing message I've ever heard. So, you know, I don't know how you're going to react to it, so we'll just have to see, but it's not your typical kind of Christmas message. So stay with me, and if you feel like I'm discouraged, just give me a smile or something. Okay, so let me see where this goes. See, this series is basically trying to challenge uh, a false conclusion that I think many of us have sort of made kind of when it comes to people we read about in Scripture. And so we're sort of guilty of establishing this line of separation between real people and Bible people. So like there's me and you, and most of us are what we call real people. And then there's these Bible people we read stories about, you know. And, and so when we read some level of devotion of people in Scripture, like the lady who pours out a whole bunch of expensive perfume on Jesus' feet, we'll think, well, that's a Bible person. That's not like what real people do. Or, or when we read about some risks people took when they believed, you know, like, like uh, when Peter stood up before the violent mob who had just crucified Jesus, and he said to them, hey, guess what? Y'all just killed the Messiah. You know, when he did that, we think, wow, that's a Bible person. That's not a real person who had the courage to do that. Or we read about some of the amazing ways that God showed up or used people in Bible stories, like when the little dude packed a little lunch of fish and bread, and that's all they had, and then Jesus fed like 5,000 people with it. Well, we think, well, he's, that little kid's just not real people. He's a Bible people or person. And then there's us. You know, there's like this divide. In fact, it's so challenging us that we place sort of Bible people in this other category, almost like it's a nursery rhyme. Those are people who do not live in our neighborhoods or whose kids do not play in the same ball teams our kids play on. And, and we conclude that Bible people and real people like us actually have very little in common. Bible people are special people. They're people with halos, is kind of what we think, who walk around all the time quoting scripture and never have a bad day, and all they watch is the Hallmark Channel, and they never have doubts or fears, and they smell like incense all the time. That's Bible people, and then there's us. And there's this big divide. And if we start drinking that Kool-Aid, that Bible people belong in the other category, the implications of this are actually are massive. 
If we buy into this idea, this is a huge, huge deal. Because if Bible people belong in the other category, if they're different from us, they're not the same. It's like God, angels, Bible people, and Tom. You know, if that's kind of how we think, well, then what that means is when I read stories about people in the Bible, I don't have to be challenged by the devotion of a Joseph who gets a dream and says, hey, guess what? Your girlfriend who's soon to be wife, she's, she's pregnant, but it's okay. It's by the Son of God. And we think, well, that's a Bible person. <laughs> or we don't have to be kind of moved by, by or inspired by a faith that we see in Mary, who's this little girl, says, guess what? You're pregnant. You've never been with a man before, but it's okay. It's from the Holy Spirit. And we think, well, that's Bible person. That's not real people. Or we, or we don't have to kind of be inspired or challenged or believe in angels, maybe like the shepherds did, or we don't have to be driven with a purpose like the wise men who wouldn't stop and traveled for years to try to actually see baby Jesus. And we conclude they're special people. They're other people. They're not like us. And we come to a room like this and we listen about those special people. Well, the Broken Halo series we've been doing, and we're going to finish in uh, next week, that Broken Halo series is actually designed to get rid of the halos. Because everything you read, there are no categories of Bible people and real people. God just made all people. He didn't make Bible people and then the rest of us. They're just real people. When you read scripture, everything that you read, those are just people like me and like you. Yeah, they lived a while ago, but they're no different than other people that lived a while ago. They're just people. And any halos that we have going on or anybody's had, those are, those are broken halos. They're, they're not intact. You see, all of humanity knows what it's like to kind of run into a wall or, or be confronted with a disappointment or, or with a despair or to be broken by relationships or by disease. And so everybody in this room, we all have these moments or days or weeks or months and even seasons of our lives when things don't go our way. It's like you get up and you get knocked down again. You get up and you get knocked down again. And if nothing else this year, what I've taken away from the Christmas story, and again, maybe it's because of where I am, but the Christmas story is certainly a story of a bunch of people, ordinary people, and nothing went according to their plans. And I connect to that. Do you? This is the point. You either give me a nod or this. Either one. I don't care which. Okay, you're with me. Some of you. Good. See, in my life and in your life, when things don't go according to plan, well, I, I think we ask the same questions Bible people ask. Isn't it true? We sort of say, well, how'd this happen? That's the first question. Whether you get diagnosed with something or, you know, whether you have a relationship fall apart or whether your kids sort of reject you or whether your parents reject the kid. I don't know, whatever we have going on or there's an accident. The first question we ask is, how in the world did this happen? And then the second question, once we get to that one kind of resolved at some level, we say, well, now what are we going to do? Or where do we go from here? What do I do now? And that's kind of normal, ordinary human experience. But in the midst of those moments that happen, when we're asking, how did this happen? They're weighing on us. They're crushing us. This message of Christmas, apparently this year, and I don't know if it's because mom passed away this year. I'm really not sure what it is. But for this Christmas, it's really blaring through for me. Just, just kind of different than I've ever seen it before. Because if, if, 
if the message of Christmas was actually true for the ordinary cast of Christmas characters, well, then maybe it's true for me. And maybe it's true for you, whatever it is you're grinding on, whatever you got going on in your life. And this is sort of where I've settled for this series. See, God chooses real people, not special people, real ordinary people, just ordinary people to do things that none of us would think would be possible. And he does it in ways that we've never even considered. That's what God does. He chooses ordinary, normal Tom and you. Ordinary people, not perfect people, not people that never have a bad day or say the wrong word at the wrong time, <laughs> just ordinary people. And, and real people to do things that nobody ever considered or thought possible in ways that we've never considered. That, that's kind of what Christmas is saying. So, you know, I, I ask myself, who's going to make these things happen Who's going to heal relationships or help pick up pieces or restore my beliefs that I've lost or, or, or heal disease or help people through a battle with disease? Who's going to fill the emptiness? And, and every time I get to that point, that there's two options. It's either nobody or God. And so God is kind of, faith is this. It's, it's the belief that God's who he says he is. He's going to do everything he promises to do. Now, all that to say this. That's all kind of the professional belief system. It's what I get paid to tell you people. But if you'll allow me, this isn't the definition of faith that I normally default to. I'm supposed to. I know that. But I don't always do this very well. In fact, sometimes my definition of faith looks different. I mean, this is good for like a blend of Mother Goose and Jesus. And I believe this to be true, but it also sounds a little bit like, and they lived happily ever after. So this is the definition of faith that I think I default to, at least right now where, I'm at, where I am. The, the definition of faith I have is the belief that I'm good enough and I can do and will do everything that needs to be done. That's my definition of faith. You, am I alone? Come on, are you with me a little bit? So, so let, me, let me put it like this. Uh, the belief that I'm good enough. In other words, if I'm good enough, I will be qualified. Okay? I'll be qualified to handle this and I will do. In other words, I'll have the ability and, and, and do everything that will need to be done. I got a solution, I got an ability, and I'm qualified. And I love this definition of faith. You know why? Because I'm the one in control. I love that. Wouldn't it be great if Tom was in control of everything? You know, oh, Lord help us. You know, I, I know, no, not, yeah, I know, I got people in my house that feel the exact same way. In fact, I feel the same way. But, but here's the problem for me with this definition of faith, and I hope some of you are with me. If this is true, and if you actually can get to a point of honest confession and think, you know, Tom, sometimes that's what I think I have my faith in too. The problem is this. I'm, I'm getting old. Not real old, I mean, but I'm, I figure I'm halfway through. And, and this, this other definition, this works really good when I'm 20. No, no offense to anybody who's 20, but it worked great for me for a number of years. But then I realized a couple of things. I'm never this. I never am good enough, whatever that is. I, I, I never feel like I'm good enough for whatever, you know? I never think I'm good enough that I should always suddenly be making decisions for the whole planet. 
And I've had enough relationships where I get wounded or I wound other people or I reject or they reject or, or I've, I've been confronted with far too many situations that I can't fix. Right, come on, you with me? Where this definition doesn't work. It doesn't work. And just pastoring our church and the number of situations that you and I are sort of carrying together as you talk to me as we head out the door or I hear about something going on and you hear about what's going on in my life and you can't fix it either. And it's this cold, hard reality that my definition of faith stinks. I think there are sort of two kinds of faith. There's one kind of faith that I would call saving faith. This is where I kind of realize that, well, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus to save me. And a good man of us in this room would say, you know, Tom, I think I, I got that one. I, and and I, I think I do too. I really believe in that one. But it's the second kind of faith that I wrestle with. And it's the faith that God is actually going to show up when I'm hurting. Or, or said another way, the faith that God is going to help with the battle that's at hand. So maybe many of us in the room have faith that we'll be saved, you know, ask God to forgive us, and we live in that, and that's a good thing. But when it comes to the battle at hand, we're like, man, I wonder what I can control or fix and help. Faith that saves me, but it's that second faith that's a challenge to me. And that second kind of faith, faith for the battle at hand, that's what I have seen in excess in the Christmas story this year. This second faith is the one that's sort of been lighting me up. Everything I've been reading this year in the Christmas story has been read through that lens. And this lack of this second kind of faith, if you got this one, but this one you're wrestling with, well, then you get stuck in a rut like I do, and you live with this limp, and you get cynical and doubt, and and you don't believe it's ever going to get better. (laughs) Because you got the first faith, but maybe you struggle with the second one, like, like I do. Let me really depress this and then see if I can pull us out of the hole here. See, I think life is sort of this way. Everybody in the room, you're either getting ready for, in the middle of, or coming out of a time or season of life where you are going to have to say, i got to trust God, or I'm going to have to trust myself. Everybody, we're all living in those moments. And to trust in myself is to believe that I can actually control things. I can actually fix this and heal this. Or we surrender to God and have faith for the, he'll handle the battle at hand. Mary has an angel say, hey, guess what? You're pregnant. But it's okay. It's the son of God. That's a difficult day. Some might even say that's a bad day. But you know the thing that's bothered me this year? Things are actually going to get worse for Mary. I mean, she hears this is a bad day. You're pregnant. And you would think, well, get that behind you. And then everything else is going to be up and to the right. And the roses are going to be beautiful. No. In fact, I might even suggest... This is the beginning of a day in which Mary's going to suffer the rest of her life. I I love that song, Mary, Did You Know? But I I, I always have this argument with the radio when it plays it. Because I'm like, well, what about this? What about this? You know, Mary, did you know? And it sounds so beautiful. I just want to add some verses, you know. Did you know that Mary, that Joseph's going to think about divorcing you when you tell him you're pregnant by God? 
Did you know that? Mary, did you know? And where's that verse? How about this one? Mary, did you know that you're going to be ridiculed by everybody in town for the rest of your life? Oh, there's Mary, but she got pregnant by God. Mary, did you know? They need to change the theme of that song. It needs to be one of those angry rock songs, you know, that kind of thing. I can kind of get, Mary, did you know that you'd have to fly to Egypt because some insane king is going to kill all the two-year-old boys because of your baby? How would you like to live with that guilt, moms, dads? Mary, did you know that some of your other children are not going to believe Jesus is who he says he is? So some of your other children are going to sit around the dining room, dining room table, the dinner room table, the dining room table, and they're going to be fighting at your table. That part we all get. But what they're going to be fighting about is Jesus you're not the son of God. And mom, who is Jesus' dad? My table's looking pretty good right now. That's what they're going to be fighting about. Hey, Mary, did you know that some of the people who end up believing your son is who he says he is, you and your son are actually going to watch die? That's what happened at Christmas. <laughs> Tom, man, you get medication. I know, I know, I know, I know, I get it, but just let me show you where this ends. In, in those days, Caesar Augustus issues a decree, census to be taken, entire Roman world. Everybody went to their town to register. So Mary gets the angel, and Joseph, and Mary says yes. And then things don't get easier. Now Mary's nine months pregnant. And she has to ride this donkey, just so we're clear. I mean, most of us have this image that it's just kind of riding down a church aisle, right? You know, that's how far it was. Actually, Mary had to ride nine months pregnant on a donkey for 80 to 90 miles. No wonder she gave birth when she got there. I mean, of course she did. 90 miles, riding on a donkey, nine months pregnant. And the poor donkey, that's probably not relevant. But anyway, I mean, just saying, that's, I know, send an email. But anyway, so... And the reason they're actually being, the reason they're actually going to Bethlehem, let me make this clear, this isn't like to go and everybody's going to celebrate Jesus and watch a parade in Santa Claus. That's not what's happening. They're actually going to be counted. Why? Because Rome wants to tax the fool out of them. It's oppression. That's why this is taking place. So nine-month pregnant Mary hops on the donkey, goes riding into Jerusalem or Bethlehem so she can be counted, so that they can be taxed more. So Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. It's where he had to go, kind of like voting polling stations. This is where he had to go. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married, expecting a child. Normal people in incredible circumstances. How did this happen? Now what am I going to do? What do I do next? For Mary and Joseph, they'd wrestled down the first question. Now, I'm not saying it was a great answer. How did this happen? Oh, let me tell you. (laughs) The Holy Spirit's going to come on you, and you're going to get pregnant with that. That's how it's going to happen. So Mary and Joseph are ordinary people like me and you. Like, that makes no sense, but at least it's a how. So once you get the how thing answered, what they do next is what blows my mind if they're ordinary people, real people like Tom, if we would grow up in the same house. They're trust, and they're faithful, and they're obedient. 
And I guess that's sort of what people do when we can't trust in our own abilities. We just sort of surrender. But it's okay because they're following God. And following God naturally means everybody's going to be comfortable and the story's going to end and everybody lives happily ever after, but not necessarily. Verse 6, while they're there, times come for baby to be born and she gives birth to her firstborn, a son. Wraps him in cloths, placed him in a manger, and that little thing at the end, because there wasn't any room for them anywhere else. Why did they put that in there? The mother of the Son of God who said, yeah, I'll follow you. I'll surrender. I'll ponder these things of what Scripture says. I'll ponder these things in my heart. I'll trust. Has her first baby that God gave her in a barn because there wasn't any place for them to sleep once they got to town. And let me say, if, there's a, if these are real people, and if this was me and this was you, wouldn't it be a part of you, little maybe, or maybe a huge part of you, who would say, God, uh, I did what you told me to do here. You see where I'm going? I did exactly what you told me to do. By the way, not easy. It may have been the son of God, but he's a heavy little son of God, okay? Nine months riding on a donkey, 90 miles, and here I am. You couldn't provide a bed for us? Really, God? Isn't there part of you? I mean, if you could do it without getting hit by lightning and stuff. Isn't there part of you? Because that's exactly where I would go. Now, again, I haven't been pregnant with the Son of God. I get all that. But, But haven't you uttered some version of a prayer like this? Why, God? Why is this happening to me? Why is this pain in my life? Why is this rejection part of my life? Why is this confusion part of my life? And sometimes in these moments of challenge or trial, my perspective gets challenged because God enters the world in a very human way. In fact, God entered the world the same way everybody in this room entered the world. And if you don't know that, you know, ask your mom on the way home, okay? Because that's, that's where you get that information. But that's how God entered the world. God entered the world like that. And when the first announcements were made, They were made with not, oh, it's a boy. It wasn't that. It was, don't be afraid. And if anything the past year has taught me is that I can live with fear not when it comes to my salvation and where I spend eternity. But it is difficult for me to live with fear not in the manger, in the hospital, in the counseling office, in the funeral home in the courtroom. Now here is the stunner of all this, if you've been able to track. In the midst of the trials that Mary and Joseph were going through that we celebrate every year, in the midst of no place for you to have a baby, in the midst of you're pregnant, you're going to be ridiculed the rest of your life, in the midst of Joseph going to quietly divorce and nope, you've got to keep her, in the midst of all that, get this, God was actually being good. He was actually being good and keeping his promises to the world that were made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before.
And my notes say, I should say right now, there's a pastoral lesson. But I don't even mean it as a pastoral lesson as much as just a a dude lesson (laughs) for me. Sometimes you follow Jesus and it gets harder, people, not easier. In a short time, as I mentioned, an insecure king, this is the one that is going to feel threatened and he's going to assign a death squad to go through the town and just kill babies. Mary and her new husband and their new baby are going to have to hit the road again and go from all the way up here, if you've ever seen a map, all the way down over here to Egypt to flee while all these babies are killed because of their baby. How do you live with that? For the rest of Mary's life, even when Mary's able to return back home, she will walk to the marketplace and she will hear the whispers. Oh, there goes Jesus, the carpenter's son. I wonder if Mary had any close friends. So all this to say this, why did God choose this way? I mean, I've got like, I'm not even that bright, and I've got like two or three better ideas than this one. Why did he choose it this way? I mean, he could have had Jesus born to a family of political power in Rome and transferred Rome from the top down. Trickle down salvation, that's what he could have done. Or, or he could have had Jesus born into a Jerusalem family that was part of the religious establishment and sort of changed it from within. But he didn't. It's almost like God had Jesus born into the most difficult circumstances possible. And my question is, why would he do it like that? Let me ask you a question. In your current life, the real life, not the face, Facebook, Instacrack, Snapchat thing. Not all that. Just your real life. Not like, wee, everything's wonderful. Not that. The real life. And the things that you battle with or have battled with this year. Let me ask you. What kind of God would you be looking for in your real life? Because I've really had to mine down on this this year. So I was thinking, what kind of God would I trust? Would it be a controlling God? Okay, Tom, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go up here. I'm going to hang right, going to hang left, and I'm going to give you a flower. You're going to take that flower, and you're going to give it to that lady there. She's having a really bad day. Is that the kind of thing you want? That kind of controlling God? A God that makes you do what he wants you to do? How about this? How about a faraway God? Okay, God, give me breath, and then you stay out of the way. Just let things happen. What about a commander God? Harding, front and center. This is what I'm going to have you do today, and don't screw up. Is that, is that what you want? What about a meat God? Oh, I don't know, Tom. Whatever you'd like to do today would be great. Let's sit down and watch Hallmark together. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I don't know what meat looks like. That's the best I could come up with. How about a weak God? Man, I'd really like to help you in your situation, but can't. Not able. Just too weak. Or how about a deity that you have no relationship with at all and can't even relate to? 
Y'all remember Mork from Ork? And you remember when he'd go in that little closet, come in, Orson? You remember that kind of thing? We have no emotional attachment to Orson. We can't relate to him. You know that? We can't relate to that God. No idea. And I don't know if he's God or not, but you can't relate to it. Well, what if that was the God that we're here to celebrate today? Or would it be helpful? Would it be intriguing to hear, to approach a God who hears your prayers that says life is really hard and sort of crappy right now and that you are struggling and you're afraid. And as you pray your fears and thoughts and worries to God, God says, yeah, me too. I know what it is to question how in the world you got to a point like this. I know what it is to question where in the world you go from here. I know what it is to face the literal crisis for my life and ask God for help. And God says, no. So I went on to face a cross. You see, if that kind of God is real, and I believe he is, then that kind of God gets me. But more importantly, I feel like I get him. Hebrews, book in the New Testament, says this. We don't have a high priest. That's someone who will intervene between us and God. We don't have someone to talk to God or mediate for us who is unable to sympathize. That word, sympathize, it means to share someone's feelings, to have compassion, to comfort, because you understand the feelings. We don't have a God who, or high priest, is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, our maladies, our frailties, our feebleness. Jesus wasn't born so that if we're good enough, we can have a nice house and a nice happy family, a picket fence, and a designer dog. You ready for the weirdest phraseology of the good news of Christmas maybe you'll ever hear? (laughs) The good news is that God actually came to suffer with us. Here's what I mean. Lord, this has been my prayer this year. Hey, man, mom passed this year. I lost somebody I love very much. And God says, yeah, Tom, me too. I've lost someone I love very much too. Let me tell you about my friend Lazarus. Let me tell you about the time I was preaching and I got word that my good friend, my cousin, John the Baptist, had his head chopped off because he believed in me. I get it. Lord, I got people in my family that hate me. Let me tell you about my conversations growing up as a boy. I died with half my brothers and sisters not believing I was who I said I was. I get it. Lord, I'm suffering because of a friendship. Oh, let me tell you. Me too. Lord, I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm actually suffering because I'm doing the right kind of thing, the right thing. And Jesus like... Let's swap notes on that one, bad boy. You know, let me tell you what I suffered for doing the right thing. Lord, I'm, I'm hungry, destitute, 
I went 40 days one time without food. I get it. I grew up pretty poor. I get it. Lord, I'm so lonely right now. Uh, One time I was teaching, and everybody didn't like what I said, so they all left me. One time I was fighting in the moment of my life, and I was hurting. In fact, I was praying so hard I was bleeding when I prayed. I was sweating. But I took my three closest friends with me, the kind of like that come over and we watch ball games and eat chicken wings together, and I brought them with me, and they stayed at one spot. And I went up here, and I just was having it out with God. I felt so lonely. But I came back to my buddies, and they were all sleeping. And I never felt more alone than in that moment. God, I'm, I'm, I'm just sad all the time now. I know what it is to be sad. I know what it is to grieve. Lord, I'm not sure what the future holds. <laughs> I, I know what it is to have an uncertain future. Lord, someone I love very much betrayed me. Yeah, let me tell you about my friend Judas. I love Judas. We had some great times together. God's told me no. Yeah, he told me no too. Sometimes I cry out to God and I wonder where in the heck he is, Jesus says. Yeah, me too. In fact, I was hanging on a cross and I cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, God, where in the heck are you? Why have you forsaken me? That's the God that we came to worship today, as difficult as that is to get our minds around. It almost would be easier if he was just a commanding God, because then I wouldn't have to have any emotional attachment. I could keep the whole thing detached. And I think that's the God of the broken halos. That's the power when I hear that word Emmanuel this year, that God is with us. It's not just that he's with us, but it is that he gets it. He, he understands what it is that I am experiencing in the moment. A child is born, a child who will know joy and disappointment and suffering and exuberance and loss and gain and rejection and acceptance. And if all that is true, you make your own decision on that. But if that is true, I choose to believe it is. Then that God who chose to be part of this human experience, make no mistake, is a good God. Sometimes you and I, we're grinding on a certain thing and we feel like it's the end of the world, but all the while God is working over here to do something amazing. 1809, I'll give you an example from history. Napoleon's fighting in Austria. It's bloodshed. 
All the papers are saying this is kind of the end of things. This is the worst day of humanity. But all while that's going on in 1809, William Gladstone is born that year, and he's destined to become one of England's finest statesmen. That same year, Alfred Tennyson is born to an obscure minister and his wife, and that child one day greatly affect the literary world in a marked manner. That same year, in American continent, Oliver Wendell Holmes is born in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Not far away from that, in Boston, Edgar Allan Poe was born, 1809. It's also the same year that a physician named Darwin and his wife named their child Charles Robert. In 1809, that same year, the cries of a newborn baby are heard in a log cabin in Hardin County, Kentucky, and that baby's name was Abraham Lincoln. And they were broadcast all the time at that time of year, that year, and certain words were heard, the destiny of the world is being shaped on an Austrian battlefield today. But you and I know today that actually history was being shaped by the cradles and what was being born in England and in America. Everybody's going to get taxed. It's bad news. Horrible news. But Jesus is born. And this young Jewish woman created, cradled the biggest news of all. A Savior's born. So whatever it is you got that you're fighting, whatever it is that I'm going through, whatever it is I'm praying about right now, I doubt it's the biggest news. A Savior's been born. He's Christ the Lord, and he gets me, and he gets you. And so we don't have to do this alone. Jesus, thank you for your goodness to us. I'm grateful for saving faith. Hey, listen, I don't know where you are. I don't have the honor and privilege of knowing you well, all of you. But I do want to say that if the saving faith thing is intriguing to you, maybe God is speaking to you. Maybe that's something you want to do. And I'm not asking you to have the experience that everybody else you know has had. I'm asking you to have your own experience. And what does that look like? Well, to be honest with you, it's intensely personal at first. It's where you and God have some conversation. And you don't have to use, like, Bible words. (laughs) There aren't any Bible words. They're just words. There aren't any Bible people, just people. And so you tell God, I need saving. And what that means is you're sort of aware of a darkness inside of you that you're not really like, you don't like. You know, you pile up shame or hurt or guilt or whatever, and you, and you regret some things. And the thought of doing life with all those things scares you, discourages you. Well, that's what we mean by saving. You can take all those things and tell God about them and ask if he'll save you. And he will. He does. It's what the Bible says he does. And that, that's a good faith to have. And maybe some of you, the faith that you actually need today is for the battle at hand. You came in here with a good rock-solid saving faith. You're just not sure God knows what's going on right now. And my, my suggestion is he does. Not as you know, but he gets you.
He empathizes. He sympathizes. That's a, that's a pretty doggone good God. Ask him. Ask him. He'll give you faith for the battle at hand. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. That you never leave us, never forsake us. Thank you for being the Savior of the world. In your name, amen.